Hello and welcome to Out of Office. My name is Johnny Caldor and this is a podcast where I get to take walks with interesting people in media and find out what makes them tick. Now this is episode four and in this episode I took a walk with Katie Vanek-Smith, an old friend of mine who I used to work with uh, at News Corp quite some time ago now. It was a long walk. We, we were in West Sussex near Katie's home and we covered all sorts of topics and took a long time doing it. So it was about an hour and a half, I think. And, and as such, I've decided to split this into two episodes. So in this episode that you're about to listen to, we talk about Katie's career at News Corp, initially uh, a News UK for The Times, and then her move to New York, working for Dow Jones, ultimately becoming the president of the Wall Street Journal. And we cover topics like uh, working for Rupert Murdoch, um, building the paywall for the Times Online 10 years ago and where that's ended up, and also growing, you know, what has become a very big subscription business for the Wall Street Journal and lots of other stuff in between. Um, I really recommend sticking around and listening to it. It It was a lot of fun recording it. And I will catch up with you at the end. I'll tell you a little bit more about the next episode. Speak to you later. Well, tell us where we are. So this is Slindon. This is a little village in the South Downs, formerly, I think, in the South Downs National Park, which is sort of a new thing. Um, Not far from where I grew up. So I grew up five miles away in a little village called Barnum, but it's on the other side of the road. What does that mean? So if you live down in Sussex, Sussex is divided by the A27. (laughs) And on one side of the A27, you've got the seaside towns of Bognor Regis, Brighton. Lovely. And lots of 70s builds for retirement homes and low-cost housing. And it's sort of a sprawl of little Hampton, Bognor Regis. It's quite, you know, family starter home land and retirement home. And then you cross the A27... And it's sort of countryside, farming. Posh. And posh. And so um, Johnny Hornby, who owns the ad agency CHI and the AM partnership, used to live in the village. And he did once say to me, your autobiography should be how you cross the A27. <laughs> and when did you cross the A27 then? Oh, um, I don't know. I well, I bought the house here about 14 years ago. Um... My mum, who, my mum was uh, sick of my brother living with her and sort of called me one day and said that she might kill him. My brother is a high-functioning Asperger's, so it can be quite hard work. Um, but he, he got himself on a housing list and eventually moved out, so she never did need to move in with me. But the idea was that I was going to buy a place down here yeah. to provide her with a place to escape from my brother and a sort of... And so we found this. She found it, actually. My mum found it. And um, she never moved into it. And it was for sort of 10 years a brilliant 1970s B&B for Londoners escaping London every weekend. We had sinks in every bedroom, which most men enjoyed. (laughs) Why did the men enjoy it? You know damn well why the men enjoyed it, Johnny. Oh, my God. Okay. well, that just, no. No middle-of-the-night trips to the toilet. 
Oh, I see. Okay, I thought you oh, were on you a completely different plane going? there. All right, good. That's better. <laughs> oh, God. That is better. Um, ensuite bathroom. Yes. Okay. In all manners <laughs> of an ensuite, <laughs> but just a sink. Makes complete sense to me. So, now. yeah, so this is where we are. We're in Slindon. So, we're walking down the top road and we're about to go into the downs. And from here, you can walk all the way pretty much to. Actually, you can walk all the way from here to London on Stane Street, Holy which crap. is the old Roman road, but all the way through the Downs. So there is a, as you get into the Downs, you find the straight Roman road, the original Roman road that ran from Winchester to London. Do we and get to see the sea? I forget. We do from your garden, but... You can see the sea as we come downhill. Yeah, cool. But we're going to go up first. Okay. So how, how far are we going? 5k. Don't know. We'll I never measure the walk. Why no, would you measure the walk? Well, you don't need to. Oh, yeah, quite. It's a good point. Okay, so let's talk about... Let's do a bit on career. Okay. Because I think it'd be interesting. So I first met you at the Times. Well, you were at the Times. I was, so were you, weren't you? Well, I guess good I was... Morning. morning. Yeah, I suppose. I was News UK. So I wasn't necessarily affiliated with one Was it News title. UK or News International? News International. With the beautiful News International logo in the beautiful the whopping plant. Stalag whopping. Which a friend of mine just moved into in an apartment there. Yeah, and, my, and um, the uh, mother of one of Stan's friends is the chief architect on. Oh, really? The redevelopment, yeah. That's pretty cool. So hang on, so you, but what, by the time I met you, you'd already been to News once, gone to the Telegraph, come back. <laughs> yeah. What made you come back? So I did two and a half years at the Telegraph. Um, I left because I felt like I'd run out of runway for my career. I'd asked for more responsibility, not been given it. And my boss at the time, a guy called Andy Mullins, sort of said, look, I can't give you anything more in the marketing department. Maybe go and speak to Paul, Paul Hayes, who's one of my career heroes yeah. who's unfortunately no longer with us but Paul said well the thing about you Katie is you need to learn to be patient or piss off <laughs> so I thought hmm, patience me it's not kind of right they're not really that they're not comfortable bedfellows should we say so I thought well maybe it's time for me to go outside of news bearing in mind I had already left news once before so this would have been my second time leaving yeah and the Barclay brothers had just bought the Telegraph. Murdoch McLennan was the new CEO. And I thought, I'd heard that he was having a big sort of kind of rethink of the commercial teams. And I knew somebody who was in there reshaping the marketing function as a sort of consultant. Mm -hmm. So I thought, oh, give it a go. So I called Murdoch McLennan probably an hour after Paul Hayes had told me to be patient or piss off. <laughs> the next morning I met him for breakfast in the Ritz. Over breakfast I pitched the idea that he needed a marketing director. Well, oh, he didn't have one? Didn't have one because he was firing everyone. Oh, I see. Right. And um, Murdoch had come from the mail, so the great tradition of newspaper promotions, TV ads with falling money and the whole... Classy. You know, classy ads um, but he understood marketing in that sense you know it was a big part of the Daily Mail success 
So he was like, yep, I need a marketing director. So I said, okay. He said, I currently was, I was at the time the promotions director on the Times and Sunday Times. And um, he said, well, how much do you want to be paid? I took my salary, doubled it and added some. Said it and he went, yeah, all right then. Oh my God, <laughs> so I was those like, are the days. Okay. Um, so I did that, I doubled my salary. Um, and headed off to Canary Wharf because they were still in Canary Wharf then. And during the time I did two and a half years at the Telegraph. So your question was, why did you come back? Yeah. It was great, you know, it was the first, it was the first time I'd got to build a team from scratch because he had actually fired everyone. So there weren't, there was no one. In fact, no, that's not quite true. When I turned up on day one, there were like four people shaking. <laughs> Um, one, one guy, a really amazing guy called Paul Lotherington, who's now at Google, Lothers to us, young, super smart guy, said he was one of the four people that had been spared the uh, restructure uh, that had gone before I arrived. And I said to him, what do you do? He said, oh, I do youth development. So marketing, youth development for the Telegraph. I said, oh, what are you doing? Sort of, how do we acquire 45-year-olds? He said, <laughs> no, no. Tonight, I'm heading off to the Ministry of Sound to judge Telegraph student DJ. Oh, cool. Very disco vicar. Anyway, uh, needless to say, we stopped the youth development programme oh, at the nice. Telegraph because it did feel a little out of touch with the actual core product. Anyway, so I did two and a half years there, built an amazing team, in fact, many of the people that I worked with at that time, 2005 to 2007, Susie Watford, Paul Lotherington, Emma Fraser, Liz Mosley, you know, a girl called Debbie Williamson. It was an amazing team. There was a yep. really, they've all gone on to do amazing things. So Debbie Williamson founded Swoon, um, which is the online furniture business. Okay. Nick White is the digital lead for Samsung. Lothers is running Google Play. Emma's one of the industry leads at Google. Susie's running the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Just an amazing team. So I had an amazing time and we built that from scratch. Um, and it was two and a half years. But why did I leave? After two and a half years, it was, it was clear that my vision of marketing was quite different to falling money with Philip Schofield in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> So it wasn't very challenging intellectually. Yeah. yeah. It was still very it was still very advertising focused as a business. And so they didn't understand the value of marketing as a lever of growth, a lever, a lever um, you know, a lever of business growth. You know, marketing was really about putting the value on the front page puff, the promotions. Yeah. Very tactical. Mhm. Mm and so, whilst it was great for me, like in terms of learning leadership, getting to build a team, learning how to work with agencies, <laughs> rounding myself out as a marketeer, because obviously I had done promotions in the main, but I learned subscription marketing there, brand. So I got to broaden my knowledge of marketing and I worked with some amazing people outside of the Telegraph, you know, in, in my agency portfolio. Um, so I learned huge amounts on a personal level, but it was strategically not very interesting. Yeah. So um, I actually, after about two, two and a half years thought, 
I'm kind of done here. And then I remember thinking, right, maybe I should get out of publishing. Maybe I'll go and have a look outside. So 2005, um, had a couple of job interviews, went and saw a few people. What sort of stuff? Um, well, I said, oh, let's get out of publishing and then had a few interviews at EMAP. Oh, um, okay. I had a few interviews in retail. Um, had a few conversations with people um, around sort of <clears throat> e-commerce at the time, but all very consumer-focused businesses. Yep. And I got a call from Robert Thompson, who's now the CEO of News Corp. But at the time, he was the editor of The Times. Yep. And um, it was also at the time when all the rumours, late 2000, sort of mid-2007, where all the rumours were circulating about Rupert and the Murdochs and News Corp buying the Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones. So he called me out of the blue and he sort of said, um, is there any chance we could persuade you to come back? And, um, and so I met him for breakfast and we had a chat. Um, and then I followed up with Paul Hayes. Yep. And then I found myself back there in 2007. Um, and I always remember the breakfast I said to, said to Robert, so there's loads of rumours, though, that you're the editor, that, you know, he was the editor of the Times at the time. And this was the second time I'd been brought back to news by an editor. So the first time I left to go travelling in my early 20s, I was asked to come back by the then editor, Peter Stossard, to launch, to be part of the launch team of the digital properties for the Times and Sunday mm. Times. And I did. I came back and worked as the digital director in, you know, early 2000. Um, so it's the second time an editor, which is sort of interesting because I'm not editorial, I'm always, I've always been commercial. And so I, I sort of remember him, I remember saying to him at the time, but there's this rumour that, you know, News Corp's going to buy, um, News Corp's going to buy the journal. That means you're going to probably piss off, right? I was like, and I don't want to work for an editor I don't know. You know, the joy of doing a job in, in something like newspapers, as you well know, because you have many of those as clients. Yeah is that actually whatever job you do in the media company, you want to have a great relationship with the creative side. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to have a great relationship with your editor. And so I'm like, yeah, I'll think about coming back, but you're about to leave. And he's like, no, 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 no. Two months into me being back, he walked <laughs> off. <laughs> That's so. funny. And we, and we started within months of each other, or you restarted... When did you start? Because I started September. I started back September two thousand seven. Oh, okay, me too. Okay, so the same time. Yeah, within weeks. Yeah. I remember for the first time I met you was in the rum warehouse in your little office up on the mezzanine. Oh God, yeah. Oh, or as um, or as Liz, who I still work with now, but now at Tortoise. But Liz, who I work with at the Telegraph and. Then I worked with at the Times before she went off to Heat magazine, Liz Mosley. I remember her coming in. I didn't interview her in Wapping for the very reason. Because it's so awful. Yeah. <laughs> for the very awful. reason no one would ever come. If you, yeah. if you say, oh, come, come down and come and interview. You So I interviewed her in, like, in one of the agencies in the West End with the free tea and coffee. Right. You know, the sort of lovely setup with a nice leather chair. Yeah. It used to be really hard to hire people. I remember, for, certainly in our, in our team, getting people to take a technology job at a newspaper in 2007 was not an easy task. Well, I think it's, unfortunately, 
think it's very hard to get people to join the commercial sides of news still. Yeah. It's been very tough 10, 10 20 years. It hasn't no. been sexy for a long time. For a long time. The 90s was the last time it was properly good fun, <laughs> and I got to join in the, uh, in the mid-90s. So I had five, ten years of proper fun, and then it's been hard, right? 20 years of shit. No, the, the whopping... Um, the whopping set up and the, the rum houses. Um, Liz referred to them as the Eastern. She said, no, they're like the regional arm of an Eastern European sewage works. <laughs> and do you remember, like, if it would rain? Oh, my God, you couldn't hear a thing. So you'd, you'd be on the phone and you'd say, I have to call you back, it's raining! Like that. It was just, I mean, it was awful. Anyway. So the first meeting we had in that office, I remember you telling me, I think it was like one of the first things you did when you got back. The phone was ringing and it rang more than three times and no one picked it up. And then there was your kind of mantra that across the team, if the phone ever rings more than three times, basically someone's going to die. <laughs> what? No, that it's courteous to pick it up. <laughs> yeah, but, it was, it was, but that strikes me. It'd be interesting to dig into your management style a bit because you do, you have a very... Um, unique way of managing people don't you think unique yeah i think interesting so. choice of word johnny no i like it i, I think it's you 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 take a a position take a stance and uh you know you expect people to respond um okay well so like i suppose most of the way the ways i think about it are i see the work team they really like work family. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I have a quite a large extended family and I don't like a lot of people in my family. So I've always basically thought, well, you don't have to like everyone you work with, but you all have to have a set of shared expectations, values that you would have in a family. So like in the same way, you might not like Auntie Dorothy, but if anyone went for Auntie Dorothy, you'd have her back. Yeah. That's how I think of the teams that we work with and in, in our life. And so the three rings rule is that sort of, you know, growing up, it was always courteous to, you know, if the phone's ring, you don't walk past it, you know? Yeah. And if you're in a team and someone's obviously not at their desk and their phone is ringing, yeah. why wouldn't you pick it up? It, it, yeah. So, so that sort of mentality of just sort of it feeling more like a family, I suppose, is at the heart of how I like to manage or. But you also used a word there, which I think is really key. It's, it was a rule, and I think people are very afraid these days of setting out rules. Do you? Yes, I think so. I think as a, I think that's one of your trademarks that you're not afraid to say how you feel. But I think, I mean, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, in the last few years. Thank you. Hi there. Hi, yeah. right. There's a lot of talk in the last few years about authentic leadership, which to me is just, you know, you bring yourself to work, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and if you have to label it authentic leadership, you're already starting from <laughs> the wrong place. <laughs> yes, quite. So this is like, you bring yourself to work, you treat people as you would want to be treated. And I think that when you're asking things of people, when you ask, and you know, news is a very, it's always been a quite a rumbustious place. You could almost say futuristic, but it's quite a tough environment, yeah. news. 
and made tougher by, you know, the last 20 years of economic and business model mm -hmm. uncertainty. So I think you'd, I think it's about being honest and being direct. So I think it's so hard if you're moving at pace and speed, you're asking people to do things differently, you're constantly, you know, having to reimagine what you do, how you do it. I think unless you're really honest and direct with people, and if that means that you, you have to be really clear of what people, what you expect, what you expect of, of people, yeah. I think that's only fair. I think it's also weirdly kinder. You know, when things are really uncertain and when there's yeah. a huge amount of uncertainty, I think, it's, I think it's a sort of a kindness, right? I mean, most people think it's that I'm tough and I'm hard and I'm, you know, Teflon or whatever. But I actually, I think there is a genuine, for me, I think it's just about being really honest and clear with people. Yeah, and I, I wonder whether a little bit it's the consequence of growing up with a brother who is also on the spectrum which is you have to be really clear about what you expect of people. Yep. In order, you know, any, any sort of flowery language, <laughs> anything that leaves room for misinterpretation. Yeah. <laughs> misinterpretation. Um, but equally, I'd say that I think the rules are there to provide sort of a sense of comfort in what is a very ambiguous business. So yeah. I think it's that balance because I'm very comfortable in ambiguity as well. But I think the rules or the directness and or the way that I work with people is less about what we do. It's much more about how we do it. Yeah. And then so, the results come. Yeah. So just be really clear with people about how you want people to behave. What you expect of them. So it's much more about the behaviours and the team and the, yeah. and the culture than the work itself or the strategy or the because that is all particularly in the industry that we've worked in that's all up for grabs right? well exactly those things change constantly but the values and the behaviors hopefully are don't yeah ultimately if you just blame, blame mrs v well i was thinking about mrs <laughs> v actually as you were talking um no but i i mean that's kind of the reason i brought it up because i think there are there is so much ambiguity in management these days and so few people actually just tell their teams what they expect of them. I think people are scared. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I think it's so hard. People, I think people do worry a lot about what other people think about them. And I think, you know, I've always said I don't really mind if people like me or not. I just would rather they respect me for my actions. Yeah. And I, and I genuinely think people are worried about getting it wrong, about getting it wrong, about navigating what is an ever-changing, you know, landscape. Mm -hmm. I mean, the news I joined in 95 is not like news today. Is My it? God, no. <laughs> I mean, it's quite, a, it's quite a lot that's changed. All for the better, she says. Although it is a bit less fun now, I'd say. What about the politics? How did you enjoy? Is that the right? I don't think that's the right word. But how did you deal with the politics of... I don't think it's just news, is it? I mean, just media companies tend to be extremely political 
organisations. I suppose... I suppose you just have to start by really just understanding that it's almost a game. I look at it like a game. It's like, what are the rules of the game? Internally, you're talking about... Yeah, it. the politics. Yeah. You know, are you talking about politics within a business, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think of it more like the game, the rules of the game. And... Because as a woman in news, it's not just that you dealt with politics. You also dealt with quite well-established misogyny and views about... So, so you were dealing with lots of different external power plays, yeah. right? Which, yes, was the sort of politics at large, but underneath it there was definite power plays men, women, you know, and, and, and I think you just have to spend some time thinking about what's the game, what are the rules that I'm playing in. So I used to always liken it a bit to the comfort that my male colleagues had with being quite aggressive and direct and confrontational in meetings. Yeah. And then the ability to slap each other on the back and have a drink down the pub. <laughs> right. You know, it struck me much more like a game of rugby or a sort of... Yeah. And whereas, you know, that, that's not kind of how traditionally, you know, as a, as a woman growing up playing competitive sports, you would, it's slightly, it's a slightly different dynamic. So the rules of the game are really different. So I used to say to a lot of women who found news very difficult, look, you've just got to think of it like they're playing rugby. And, and none of it's actually personal. And it, it's sort of part and parcel of the game and, and the politics. But I think ultimately, at the end of the day, it comes from the top, right? So, you know, News Corp, whilst a listed company, is still very much a family business. Mm -hmm. You know, you've still got Rupert as the figurehead. And weirdly, I think it's easier being a woman like at the beginning, I thought it was really hard being a woman in news. But actually, as I got more senior, it became easier. And it became easier because it was easier as a woman to challenge Rupert and to be honest and to be direct with him. But as I, you know, but, but actually much harder if you're a man. Because he, what, because he pulls his punches? No, because I think there is a sense, there's definitely deferent, you know, there's respect. People, yeah. you know, there, and I think there is a sort of, because it's like a family, it's a sort of that deferential father-son. It, it, it was really, the politics was, not really politics, it was like family politics. Right. A bit like succession. Yeah, it does spring to mind. <laughs> but I always, I've, I've never... Did you find it political? Horribly. Did but you? I, but I don't think you are, and that's, that was... If you take... Well, you don't have to play the game. But that's what I think that's what I love about your approach, is that you never played the game. You're just... You say how, what you think, and you, you, you're not looking to make friends with the right person. You're simply, as you say, you're turning up and being yourself. And, and, you, and you want to get the right outcome, right? So for me, you know, success in my career hasn't been about, like, rising through the ranks it's been about solving problems and getting shit done and defying the wisdoms that people sort of hold true or, and, and sort of fixing shit. I mean... That's interesting. So you didn't have a, okay, I want to be running 
the Wall Street Journal in five years' time. Totally not. I mean, if I'd wanted to run the Wall Street Journal, I would have stayed and not done Tortoise, because I probably... Well, you were running good... the Wall Street Journal. Well, I was... I was, <laughs> I was, I was thinking the... more... <laughs> oh, was in ten years of... ago, were you thinking about running Oh, God, Wall no. I've never... Yeah. No, God. Um, no. I mean, I li- don't get me wrong, I like leading teams. Yes. And I definitely like being in a leadership position. Um, but it's less about hierarchy and stature. the title and stature and power and more about like, for a purpose, right? You know, like I stayed at the Times until 2014 and kept going back. It was like my first day, well, my first week at the Times back in 1995, six, they put me in ad sales, which I wasn't very good at, nor did I enjoy, but the, it's really awful. I, I, I was put on cold calling mm-hmm. and I went to see the woman who was running the graduate recruitment program. So I was one of seven graduates that they took in on an intake. And we'd been told in typical new style, at the end of six months, there will be two jobs. Go fight each other to death. Oh my God. Um, which obviously didn't happen because the sort of seven graduates all became really great friends. And we were like, not competitive with each other. And so I think they, uh, they ended up keeping five of us. And the other two ended up leaving it with their own choice, really. Right. Um, but anyway, I digress. In my f- first week, they put me in ad sales. And I really hated it. I loved the people, but the sort of job I found really boring. Yeah. And um, I went to see the HR woman, amazing woman called Leslie Webb. She had this amazing bouffant of her hair that just did not move. Just amazing. And she was absolutely brilliant woman. And I remember saying to her, look, Leslie, don't think this is for me. I think I've made a mistake. You know, maybe you want to give the role to someone else. Because um, I'm not sure I'm enjoying ad sales. I, maybe this isn't the right graduate training program for me. And she said, oh, you read history, didn't you? At university, I suggest. She said, why don't you just go and spend a day in the archives? So she sent me off to the archives for a day. Brilliant. And I spent a really amazing day with this lovely man called Eamon. Such a nice man. And um, he showed me all these amazing things in the archive, which is a whole different story, but just absolutely brilliant, you know, from the times through history, how a Times photographer had been there at the summit of Everest, at the opening of the tomb of Tutankhamun, that guy had died of the mystery illness like Lord Carnarvon and the others. It was just amazing stuff, including yeah. um, a tent and a lamp that looked like a Florence Nightingale lamp from the Crimean. And it was because Florence had read the dispatches of a guy called Willie Russell. And Willie Russell was the first ever embedded war correspondent of any newspaper in the world. Mm-hmm. And he went to the front line of the Crimea. And so the dispatches and the sort of journalism up until that point had been written by military dispatches. But he was at the front line and saw the dying of the soldiers firsthand 
and wrote different reports back, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, inspired Picasso's Guernica painting, you know, and completely transformed journalism at that time, you know, to have in these embedded correspondence. Mm-hmm. But also, Florence was working at Thomas's and wrote to the editor of the Times and said, there's me and there's a bunch of other nurses, we'll go. If you raise the money, we'll go. So the Times readers raised the money to send Florence and the other nurses to the Crimea, which is like really cool. So I was like, okay, I love this. This is so cool. And it was Eamon who said to me, and I mean, Eamon Eamon and Leslie Webb are basically the reason I stayed in news because Eamon showed me all this amazing stuff, showed me the impact of great journalism, quality journalism, why it matters, just loads of things. And Leslie Webb sort of took a personal interest in me as a person and went, yep. you like history, so go spend a day in the archive. Uh-huh. And if those two hadn't done that, I wouldn't have stayed. And did she find you another role? No, no, she, she said, now suck it up, get back. <laughs> oh, God, really? <laughs> go and sell out sales oh, for another few weeks. Okay. And we'll rotate you, because that's the whole programme, and you <laughs> rotated through all the... So we're not making an exception for you. Right. We'll get back to your desk. Funny. Typical. Um, but the thing I was going to say is Eamon told me, so this was 95, 96, as I say, Eamon said, well, you know that the Times has never made money. I was like, what? He was like, it doesn't make money. You know, published since 1785. You know, never made a profit. Um, and, and that always stuck with me. And, you know... I really care that the Times and other newspapers not only survive, but actually they can thrive. Yeah. And so, yeah, he planted that the Times doesn't make money in my head. And that it's important. And that it's important for us to have these sustainable models for things we care about. And um, that's why eventually I did leave News, News International, News UK, Time Sunday, Time Sun, you know, yeah. at World. Yeah. When I went to the Wall Street Journal, because, as you know, because we worked on it together, the 2010 paywall, mm-hmm. which everyone thought we were bonkers to do, right. transformed the commercial fortunes of the Times. And the Times is profitable mm-hmm. and has been since. And so, you know, it wasn't until, you know, and my passion is the Times, you know, it wasn't until... I felt like that chapter had closed, that I was ever going to leave news and not have to go back. Because your job was done. Yeah, I was part of a team that had, that had cracked it. Yeah, yeah. And when you arrived at the journal, they, I mean, they already had quite a decent burgeoning subscription business, didn't they? Oh, my God. If it wasn't for the journal and the acquisition in 2007 of the journal by News Corps, and the fact that at that time James Murdoch came over from Sky, yeah. we would never have got the paywall through on the Times. Yeah. Because I always remember this, when Rupert first met the team um, who were working at the journal, Todd Larson, you know, remember those guys, you yeah, know, Todd Larson, Paul and those guys. I remember flying over Les Hinton, who had been the CEO at News our CEO in London, UK yeah. in London. He had been asked to go and lead Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal with Robert, as we said earlier. Yeah. And he asked me to fly out and meet some of the marketeers, just to sort of 
give them my feedback. And to be honest, the marketing wasn't the thing that was like memorable. You know, when you went into the journal for that first visit I went over in early 2008, it was the team running the subscription and the, uh-huh. and the digital subscription business. And um, they were, hi there. Hi. They were, um, they were so impressive. But I remember Todd turning to me saying, could have been Paul, Paul or Todd turning to me and saying, Rupert's asked us to run the numbers on removing the paywall. Oh. And they're like, they want to take it free. <laughs> and I was like, all you have to do is show Rupert the numbers that you're showing me. Yeah, yeah. And he will retain the subscription. That's interesting. Model. Because at that time, if you think about it, we sort of forget it because paid for quality journalism is now sort of pretty much the norm. Yeah. Right? different models of course but it, it's sort of now accepted but this is 2008 yeah um now we're just going to go slightly through oh my god okay it's that's going to be fun it's fine it's yep. just a little long they haven't cut it back since lockdown um but no the um so these guys you know and they're sort of showing you know the act the the acquisition by news corps of the journal is for me the defining thing that happened for the times because they had to they had to defend the decision to have paid for digital they won that debate rightly because the numbers really just you didn't really need to look at anything more than the the commercial success of it at that time yeah um but it's funny isn't it how history gets rewritten because you know, at that time, 2008, you know, the, the sort of perceived wisdom was that people will only ever, will only pay for business content. Do you remember? Yes. Like, oh, people only pay for business content. And because the FT and the Wall Street Journal were the early pioneers. Yeah. Despite the fact people have been paying for news for over 100 years. <laughs> yeah, 200 years just plus. Just kind of forgot that. That little thing. Briefly. And there are two things that always struck me in that sort of made-up falsity that became the sort of mainstream wisdom at the time. The first is exactly what you say, people pay for what they value. They always have. If you value something, you'll pay for it. Yeah. The second thing that no one really talks about, but when you when I first met the journal people, you know really refreshing there was a great amount of honesty about them after the acquisition you know they were like really honest they were like oh actually well it wasn't that we as the wall street journal team it wasn't that we wanted to charge for the content it's that we had a big business over here a b2b business that said yeah that said you can't make that free because it's the core of what we it's the core of what we um, sell. So you can't undermine the value of this amazing B2B business. And if you think about it, at the time, the FT was owned by Pearson. Yes. So it's exactly the same. It was that sort of, it was not the FT and the journal per se that created that 
piece. It was it was the Pearson Dow Jones business model. Right. Anyway, so don't know. I just went off on one, but it was. Uh, but also that t- I, you know remember titles meetings back in two thousand and seven, <sighs> two thousand eight, and it was always about monthly uniques on the websites. There was nothing at all about anything other than just scale, which yes, always felt so weird. Well, it didn't, though, did it? Because if you think about it, for 200 years, you would build a business that, that, that was driven by scale on a different, on a different level of scale, yes. right? But the whole success of the business model high was scale-driven because you priced the product for the consumers cheaply so that, that you would have the scale to sell the advertising against. So the business was built around scale. All the commercial leaders in publishing and media came from advertising backgrounds. But that scale had a very clear relationship with revenue, whereas the scale on the Times in 2008... Had no connection Had back. no connection with revenue. Because <laughs> half of the people were sitting in America and you couldn't sell them advertising. Yeah, but at the time, who's leading all these businesses? Ad people. Yeah. And if, if everything you've always known is the more scale, the more money. You know, by 2008, look, by 2001, it was obvious that digital scale was a terrible business model because you just had to look. I mean, I was digital director of the Times from 2000 to 2002. And I asked to leave digital because I didn't believe in it. Because in 2001, the cost per thousand so it was so when i first started running online we weren't selling our own online advertising it was outsourced to a specialist agency because yeah. we knew yeah um and we were getting between 35 and 40 pound per thousand we bought it in house we started getting 45 to 50 pound per thousand oh, God, amazing numbers days. look at those yeah. days <laughs> and then literally within 12 months that was down at 32 pound per thousand mm-hmm and so, uh, and the scale, we were growing like this, but it wasn't like off the charts, explosive, you know, because there was no social media. Yep. You know, it was all the, it was the era of um, walled gardens and AOL and Yahoo. And um, I always just remember thinking, I never really immersed myself in digital. I never became one of those people that sat at their desk in the rum warehouse talking on their mobile phone rather than into the actually perfectly good landline that was sitting in front of them. There was a whole bunch of them. Um, but the, um, the, in that first 12 months of being the digital director, you know, you just ran the numbers. And I remember going to see Paul Hayes and saying, this is a really bad business. We will end up, if we do it well, we'll end up reducing the cost to serve rather than the revenue per. Mm-hmm. But the whole model was cost to serve a user. Yeah. Because there was, there was no profitability. And also the entire business was based, it was all incremental, right? So it was based on the fact that the, the newspaper existed already. All of the costs, yep. all of the journalism was a sunk cost and this was all just incremental. So yep. it was never seen as a standalone business. But it was, it was very clear by 2001 that the model didn't work. And also, you could see the beginnings of early cannibalisation. Right. Not mass cannibalisation, but early cannibalisation of the newspaper sale. Yeah. And so I remember making a pitch 
to charge for content in 2001 and I got laughed out of the room and then and then we did do a trial do you remember when um texts text messages like you paid loads of money for them and there were all those text yes. services you could get yeah, them, like yeah. horoscopes yeah and, and um we built a bundle subscription for the euro um for the euros I think it was where you had football results sent to you by text, a bespoke email, um, access to sort of a microsite and a newspaper subscription all bundled in. Mm -hmm. I think we sold like 8,000 of them, right? Yeah. And I was like, well, that's quite good because if we got 8,000 uplift on the paper, we'd be quite happy. Right. But still didn't fly because 8,000 didn't compete with 10 million. Yeah, sure. But yeah, it was interesting. So, so we did... <laughs> It took a took a lot, and I think to to get that sort of title meeting conversation to change is the one you're talking about. But yes, I mean title meetings were brilliant, weren't they? I mean, with a bonkers. Who was the circulation man? He was God, amazing. Many. Hang on, Trevor. Trevor, Trevor Jones. Trevor. Lever Arch Files. Yeah, he is the, the most impressive human being I think I've ever met in oh, that meeting. Love Trev. Where he would know to within a thousand. On Thursday, there was an uplift because, I don't know. Lawnmower effect. Yeah, it was a sunny day. <laughs> Trev and I, Trev used to love my memory for numbers because, you know, he used to remember those big lever arch files he had going yeah. back to like 1984. <laughs> and you know that Trev's dad was the circulation manager before he was. Was he? No, yeah. I didn't know that. So it, they came from a family of circulation managers. And um, yeah, no, love Trev. I always remember Trev. In, in a meeting, in a titles meeting, quite early on, and the sales were, this would have been in the 90s, the sales were quite a bit lower than where we wanted them to be. And this is when the Times was still broadsheet because obviously the Times didn't go compact mm -hmm. until 2005, um, 2004, 2005. And um, so we're still a big broadsheet paper and um, <laughs> we'd um, the sales were a bit low and um, in the in the title meeting Trev said what we need is a really good death <laughs> yeah we need the queen mum to pop her cock and we were all looking at Trev sort of doing the sort of hand you know the neck guillotine movement because <laughs> there was a woman that we worked with who was the great niece of the queen mum sitting in ah, the room nice and, and Trev just kept going. Yeah, I mean, no, could you imagine that? She's quite old, right? But that would be a really good 100,000 oh, uplift. It would be amazing. And we were like, Trev, Trev. Yeah, he was a lovely, lovely man. That's funny. Still is a lovely man. But do you remember the big... So when, when, the, when the paywall was mooted, I think the, the biggest uproar was from the columnists who, weren't, who were no longer going to get the audience that they enjoyed... Twitter wasn't really around at that point, right? Oh, it was around, but it, it was wasn't, around, but it wasn't, it wasn't being heavily it used. It was blogs. Blogs were the thing, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Everyone loved a blog in, when we launched. But yeah, that... well, the uproar was from the journalists yes. because they felt they'd be irrelevant. They'd lose their audience overnight. Yeah. But also the Guardian. They were the sort of biggest and most vocal um, because they genuinely believed in an open journalism model um, and they were very vocal and also at the time 
more influential than other publishers in this particular space because Media Guardian was such a big thing. But how does open mean free? Again, I mean, it wasn't free before the internet. People had to pay to buy a newspaper. So what? Yeah, but the Guardian also is a trust, doesn't it? So they're built yeah. on the fact that it's not about making money, it's about making sure that you can sustain the journalism, but yep. it's not about profitable journalism. So right. it's a whole bunch of things that were, and they had, you know, in Alan Rushbridger, they had a really huge, passionate, very articulate um, advocate of the free web, and, and the principles of the web were built for it to be free. So you can sort of see how it happened. You've got the sort of philosophical argument of the architects of the web building this sort of free, it's democratic, democratic right. you know, access to the World Wide Web. You've got a business model or a sort of, you know, got a, the Scott Trust status of the Guardian and therefore the sort of slightly different approach to the, the role of revenue in, in, that, in, in sustaining that business. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the fact that you've built a centuries-old business that says success equals scale and reach. And, you know, you've had... By the time you know we tried to do, well, by the time we launched Paywall in 2010, you've had 10 really big years of moving from hundreds of thousands as the number of success to millions and yep. tens of millions. Yep. So you can totally see how it all happened. And all of the leaders in the commercial side of the business were advertising people. You throw that all together, mm. and you know, after my very short period in advertising. <laughs> I basically ended up spending all of my career in marketing or, you know, marketing style roles. Yes. And, and so the idea that marketing and focusing on customers, what customers want, and actually the, the thing that we have seen in the last 10 years, which is now a complete shift in the narrative around consumer revenue models rather than ad revenue models mm -hmm. in the publishing industry. It became much easier to me to see that as an opportunity because I was a marketer. Yeah. Not an ad person. So, yeah, I mean, they did laugh at us, didn't they, when we did it? I mean, you built the tech. Yeah, that was a fun project. <laughs> Well, there you have it. So that was the first half, or at least the first three quarters of, uh, of the walk that I had with Katie. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed it. And please do come back um, next week, where we'll move on to talk about Tortoise Media, uh, building a brand new news media company all around membership and a different sort of journalism. It was a really fascinating conversation. So as I said, please do come back and hopefully I'll see you in a couple of weeks.